I'll tell you, as an evidence of the liberality of this presbytery, I asked for a cup of water, and now I've got three. Ah, <laughs> uh, see, your reputation is ill-deserved. Generous, gracious, kind of. <laughs> okay, now, I want to do a couple of housekeeping matters. Um, you know, leave it, leave it to a Dutchman to throw a good curveball. Uh, Herman yesterday asked a, a question in the question and answer time. We were speaking about moderation. And, uh, and Herman uh, said, give me a text that deals with moderation. And, uh, We're not Dutchmans. Ah, the reputation is deserved. <laughs> Taking away my good things. Um, um, Alan had mentioned the, the Philippians 4 or 5 text, which is translated, I think, in the, in the King James, let your moderation be known to all men. But I was up here, you know, as I'm getting older, mental lags that come, and I realize that that was probably not, with all due respect, to the verse you and I memorized years ago. That's not the best translation. That Probably gentleness is a better term for that. So um, for those who may be musing about this, believe it or not, there are no references in the Bible in any of the translations that I've looked at on my CD-ROM and my laptop to moderation. The nearest you get is modesty. The women be dressed with modesty, that idea. There is the, uh, the Greek word uh, sophronos, which means to be sober. That's probably the closest to moderation as we would know it. But I think we go back to the word that was mentioned yesterday, and we ought to be most biblical in our expressions, that word self-control is the language. When we're dealing with discipline and, and eating or any other area of the Christian life, the term self-control is probably the most common. If you want to look at the text in your spare time, Acts 24 and verse 25, Acts 24:25, Paul discoursed with Felix about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Um, as one person mentioned, Galatians 5:23 in which the fruit of the Spirit translated in the King James temperance is also translated better self-control. And uh, see, frankly, if, if, we, uh, if that were our understanding of temperance, we should all be part of a temperance movement. doesn't mean abstinence, but self-control. Second Peter 1.6, add to your knowledge self-control. And Titus 1.8, the bishop must be one or the elder who is self-controlled. One of the writers on the verse or the word said, this is the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions. And, and that's, of course, an eminently biblical concept. And let me make this point again, as I did yesterday. Remember that in a believer, the spirit is no more in control than when the believer is self-controlled. Over against the false views of the spirit today that equate kind of a letting go and just doing whatever you want, whether it's with your tongue or your body or anything else, and saying that's the work of the spirit uh, the Scriptures teach that you are no more under the domination of the Spirit than when you are self-controlled. So uh, that's a good question by Herman. I appreciate that. And we'll try to refine my presentation of things so I use self-control instead of moderation. Now the second um, that I, I want to read, because there was a question yesterday about when, when we're talking about um, the various understandings of death, uh, Jerry had asked a question about that. I realized that that um, there was a, a large excerpt from this Tozer message, the old cross and the new, that I did not read. And I want to read it now. It will set the stage for today, link us with yesterday. And uh, I didn't get any requests yet for the copies of the tract on this, but it might encourage you to give me your name and address and request for one or more of these tracts. But um, when we deal with gospel presentation, 
Uh, remember that the cross is embedded not only in the Christian life, but in the presentation of the gospel. And Tozer hits on this beautifully. What's interesting is this uh, Tozer, as you know, as you may know, was, the, was uh, a founder. He was sort of the Jay Gresham Machen of the Christian Missionary and Alliance Church. And uh, while Tozer had uh, some funny views doctrinally in terms of his um, assessment of the modern evangelical scene in his day, the man was prophetic, small p. Uh, he just really knew what was going on. He wrote this in 1946. Now, this was over half a century ago Tozer wrote this. It's, you could, but you could run it today. And I'm just going to excerpt it. He writes, All unannounced and mostly undetected, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. It is like the old cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial. The differences are fundamental. From this new cross has sprung a new philosophy of the Christian life, and from that new philosophy has come a new evangelical technique, a new type of meeting, and a new kind of preaching. This new evangelism employs the same language as the old, but its content is not the same, and its emphasis not as before. The old cross would have no truck with the world. For Adam's proud flesh, it meant the end of the journey. It carried into effect the sentence imposed by the law of Sinai. The new cross is not opposed to the human race. Rather, it is a friendly pal. And if understood aright, it is the source of oceans of good, clean fun and innocent enjoyment. It lets Adam live without interference. His life motivation is unchanged. He still lives for his own pleasure, only now he takes delight in singing choruses and watching religious movies instead of singing bawdy songs and drinking hard liquor. The accent is still on enjoyment, and though the fun is now on a higher plane morally, if not intellectually. The new cross encourages a new and entirely different evangelistic approach. The evangelist preaches not contrasts but similarities. He seeks to key into public interest by showing that Christianity makes no unpleasant demands. Rather, it offers the same thing the world does, only on a higher level. Whatever the sin-mad world happens to be clamoring after at the moment is cleverly shown to be the very thing the gospel offers, only the religious product is better. And incidentally, that's exactly Bill Hybels philosophy at Willow Creek. It's not a new idea. It's just that he's brilliant enough to really popularize it into big business. He's one of the Fortune 500 companies. Okay? So it's not new stuff. The old cross, the new cross, now listen to this. The new cross does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boastings in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of Christian fellowship. The Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current vogue in order to make it acceptable to the public. Again, that's 1946 he wrote this. The old cross is a symbol of death. It's now listen to this. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, 
spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cool, cruel and hard. And when it had finished its work, the man was no more. That evangelism which draws friendly parallels between the ways of God and the ways of man is false to the Bible and cruel to the souls of its hearers. The faith of Christ does not parallel the world. It intersects it. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up onto a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. The corn of wheat must fall into the ground and what? Die. Okay. So that's what we're getting at when we deal with the issue of, of a biblical view of the gospel over against the modern, and you have to say it, and modern, in most many cases, counterfeits. Okay, pages 19 and 20 in your notes. pray as we begin. We thank you, our good God, for fresh mercies, for a fresh morning. And now we pray for a fresh work of the Spirit in us to illumine us, to convict us, and to lead us to the great sin-bearer, the one who makes us holy, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're dealing with particular directions for the battle. We're in part two, but let me review the material from part one. I gave you the first three particular directions. This is from yesterday. Number one, you must carefully consider the symptoms which accompany your indwelling sin. Certain patterns, frequency of success, whether the sin hardens you or softens you, you're resisting particular dealings with God. Number two, you must become heartily convinced of the guilt, the danger, and the evil of your sins and I want to highlight that again that particularly my fellow ministers is where we must make great emphasis you must become heartily convinced of the guilt the danger and the evil of your sins notice the great evangelistic mega shift the evangelism in the Bible the book of Romans the evangelistic primer begins the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's Paul, first century. The 20th century. How does our evangelistic primer begin? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, see, that's the picture of the mega shift, the difference in ministers particularly. You must make people by the Scriptures become convinced in the heart of the guilt and danger and evil of their sins. Number three, you must long for deliverance from the power of sin. And don't make that to be some kind of a mystical approach. Good hymns will do that. Psalms as well. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Cleanse me from my its guilt, sin's guilt and its power. Okay, that's that that we mean by longing for deliverance from the power of your sin. And remember that the agony of conviction of sin is part of the very answer. It's what draws you to Christ. And please don't think uh, that this is something that uh, the Puritans had to hang up about. Listen to John Calvin. He said at one point, I wish I'd noted where he wrote it, but he said in one place, it is always profitable that the sense of sin should remain because that's what turns you constantly to Christ. 
So those are particular directions 1, 2, and 3. This morning we want to, in the 45 minutes we have now, do particular directions 4, 5, 6, and 7. And remember, these are not steps. I'm not Bill Gothard with an overhead doing this. These aren't steps, okay? Uh, these are not, this is not a formula. And this is, these are elements to attack the root of sin, not just the fruit of sin. So here we go with number four. Again, this is pages 19 and 20 in your notes. Number four, I think it's all written in there, but let me highlight the words. You must deal mercilessly with your own particular lusts and sins. Each people have particular lusts and sins they deal with, and you must deal mercilessly with your own particular lusts and sins. God, remember, is merciful toward us. He is merciful toward His people. But never forget that He is merciless toward sin. That is the meaning of the third point of the five points of Calvinism. Limited atonement, not the best phrase. Arminians limit the atonement too. Arminians limit the atonement with respect to how many sins Jesus died for. Jesus did not die for the sin of unbelief. Then hang it up, folks. We're all going to be in hell. That's the way they limit the atonement. We limit the atonement with respect to the number of people. He loved His church and gave Himself for it. But all of the sins God the Father dealt with mercilessly on the cross. That's why Jesus endured hell for them. So while God is merciful toward us, He is merciless toward sin. We are to live out of God's mercy, yes, but we are too to be merciless toward our sin. Hence the language in the Scriptures, put sin to death. And don't let the American, I still wonder if it really is this legal, quote-unquote, system affect the way you deal with the law of God. With God, as you deal with sin, and you're called to put it to death, that means God says no clemency, no pardon, no commuting the sentence, and no plea bargaining. Put it to death. No excuses. Again, notice what the culture will say. Ah, you go to your friendly local non-Christian psychiatrist, and he or she will say, just remember, you owe it to yourself to do that. To make yourself feel vengeance towards someone else so you can ventilate and get it out of your system. Or they will say, remember, you deserve a break today. That's not the biblical language. You don't simply say, that's just the way I am. My guilt is not diminished. David said, Psalm 51, in sin I was brought forth. In sin did my mother conceive me. He saw himself wrapped, as it were, inside of a womb of sin. That was the environment in which he was, even from the point of of conception. Incidentally, that's an important lesson that right from conception, the union of sperm and egg is a distinct human being. Fetal tissue doesn't sin. Okay? In sin did my mother conceive me. You do not deal with it by giving advantage to Satan. You do not deal with your own particular lusts and sins by giving advantage to Satan. If I sin just this once, I'll feel better. Until the sin comes back raging with more power, 
you must deal mercilessly with your own particular lusts and sins. And here I want to highlight again what we dealt with yesterday in the Q&A time. Remember, and actually what we dealt with yesterday morning, that God has linked control of your whole body with mortification of sin. God has linked control of your whole body with mortification of sin. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. I buffet my body. I make it black and blue. He was not a pugilist personally. He did not do what monks do in the monastery. What he meant was, I buffet my body, bringing it into subjection. I do what it takes so that my own renewed mind is dominant over my own body, lest having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And that theme that the body is a conduit of grace to the soul is embedded in the Scriptures. Your body is a conduit of grace to your soul. Look with me in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 30. We learn this dealing with our own children. Remember that in the Westminster Standards, as in the Scriptures, the teaching is constantly that God's decree does not negate means. God is a God of means as well as a God of ends. God is not a cosmic puppeteer pulling strings. God uses any number of means to accomplish His will. So when I say the body is a conduit of grace to the soul, it means that while God is a God of sovereign grace, He doesn't pull strings. He works through means, including the body. What does He do? He works through your ear so you hear the gospel, right? Well, some examples. Proverbs 20 and verse 30. Blows that hurt, that spanking, cleanse away evil. Now, what does a welt on the bottom have to do with a cleansing away of evil that's in the heart? Because it says, as do stripes, another reference to the blows that hurt, the inner depths of the heart. Now, don't we say that we have no ability to change the heart by preaching and by spanking? Sure. But this is a means that God uses to teach your children that the way of the transgressor is what? It's hard, okay? So the body, the bottom in this case, where you spank, becomes a conduit to the soul. And for the lack of time, just let me mention some others. Proverbs 22 and verse 15. And since we're there, you might as well just look at it. Proverbs 22 and verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. The body as a conduit of the soul, driving it far from what? From the heart of the child. Proverbs 23 and verse 13. Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod... And parents, that's not child abuse. And that's a violation of the, eighth com- of the sixth commandment, not to kill if you abuse your children, but to spank. You do this again, you're going to get a spanking on the bottom or three spanks on the bottom. And I guarantee you, you spank on the bottom and you're not going to break any bones. Unless you're, unless you're some massive strong man who crushes the child in your grip. But that's not in view here. If you beat him with a rod, you will, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and look and deliver his soul from hell. 
That's why I told some of you, we had, you want to know one of our evangelistic packets that we have in Franklin Square? I commend this to you pastors because we want to be concerned for biblical evangelism, right? So we have for our evangelism a rod and reproof pack. We give a copy of Bruce Ray's book with hold not correction and a paddle with directions to use it on the bottom and no place else. What does that have to do with evangelism? Well, the OPC is a Bible Presbyterian church. We say, well, look, Proverbs 23 and verse 13, don't withhold correction from a child. Here's a book about it. For if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. Here's the rod. What does that have to do with evangelism? You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. That's one of our ways of soul winning is by rod. See, folks, guys, hey, listen. Don't be defensive before Arminians, please, when it comes to evangelism. You know, we always try to do Arminians one better. You can't do it as well as an Arminian does it. Why do you want to do it the wrong way better? Do it the right way. There's a good way to do it. And smile and say, see, that's our evangelism as Reformed people. All right. There's no extra charge for that one. That's, that's having to do Anyway, the point is the body is a conduit of grace to the soul. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Exercise yourself rather unto godliness. Now, what does this mean in terms of practical application? You ever heard the expression self-denial? Whoever takes up the cross daily and denies himself. That's what it is to daily die to self. Sometimes it means because you are so hungry for God, you will say no to the food that makes you fall asleep when you, eat your, when you read your Bible. That's a practical example of self-control, self-denial. You know that you need to lose a few pounds and while a wonderful dessert made by someone to the glory of God is not wrong in itself and you don't want to slight them by saying no as you visit in their home you do say I would love to have a taste of that it's obvious you put a lot of work into that um, but I do need to be careful how much I eat could you just cut me half a piece and very practical okay? self-denial exercise yourself the Bible does not say bodily exercise is of no profit our problem in our culture is we say bodily exercise is everything. Paul says, no, bodily exercise profits little. But that's very important. You learn to discipline yourself so you can get up at a certain time, so you walk or run or swim a certain amount of time, and you'll find those over dis overall disciplines will help you. No, I know I need to run those four miles, and I'm going to say no to stopping at this point. That's going to help you say no to eating too much. Just because of the way God has made us up. Your own schedule, being disciplined in a schedule as a story of a dear friend of mine who was a minister and he's an OPC minister but obviously I won't mention his name and early on in his Christian life he had a terrible problem with drinking and he hated it he hated it because of his youth because of upbringing not blame shifting it was his own indwelling sin but he would be in his literally I knew his pastor from his youth his pastor said that man would be at my doorstep Monday morning eyes bloodshot broken hearted that he'd sinned and he said the pastor said I didn't know what to do but he said, finally, one day, I said, you know, and, and uh, Victor will appreciate this. Uh, the pastor, in almost desperation, said to him, Brother, what you ought to do is sign up and go into Marines. And he did. And the Lord used the boot camp to break him of the habit of alcohol. What's that? Oh, okay. Well, you know, I've got Steve up there telling me I talk too loud, so I'm trying not to shock you all, but I'll try not to get too low. Okay. Forget about it, Steve. Let me just do my normal thing. He, um, he went in the Marines, and the Lord used that in order to break him of the habit of drinking. Okay? And I say this again, because remember, 
we live in a day, even in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, of a flesh-pampering religion. This is a cultural sin. We, a church has a day of fasting. We look at it as being somewhat legalistic. I was so convicted years ago when I was in, at, in Cyprus teaching with a group of Egyptian pastors. And here they have the wise American to teach them how to live a godly life. And in one of our afternoon discussions, they said, just as a matter of fact, how often do your churches have fasting? And the silence was about as deafening as after Herman asked his question yesterday. <clears throat> well, uh, some of our churches do, and blah, 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 blah. And they thought, and they said, oh, and not in a self-righteous way. They said, um, you know, just out of what we've done, we have two days of fasting a month. We don't impose it on our people, but we ask them to fast because our needs are so great, we know we need to pray. Now, am I saying to you, elders, go home and say, all right, two days of fasting a month because the Egyptians do it? No. But you see how flesh-pampering our religion is? I'm going to tell you, when I'm in General Assembly, and I hear a proposal for day of fasting, and I see some of my overweight minister friends say, well, what's just a day of fasting in the church? What are there, some Pharisees or legalists? Open your Bible, man. When you fast. I'm not mandating anything on your conscience, but I'm telling you that is a symptom of our flesh-pampering religion. You get a soldier out in war on a battlefield and they don't sit there saying, how come we can't play cards and watch TV? Is it wrong to play cards and watch TV? No. If it helps them go out to battle and fight better, yes. And my dear friends, to bring it home to you and not just to ministers, how about your TV? How about your soap operas? How about your sacred evening program instead of your prayer meetings or your evening worship services? How about it, folks? I'm being blood earnest about this. All the excuses in the world that we're not going to worship on the Lord's Day. God curse your excuses. Come on. In some cases, they're legitimate. You pamper in your own bottom because you don't want to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. You read the language of the Scriptures and it's battle language. It's battle. Battle language. I think that's one of the things that I love reading the early history of the OPC. And ministers who gave up their pensions I'm not against pensions. Some men are fascinated with pensions. We've got men that gave up their pensions and they worshiped out in tents so they could be faithful to Christ. What a glorious lesson that is, okay? Is this being austere? No, it's not being austere. It's putting on a contrary pattern. I'm going to do everything to the glory of God. For the sake of giving up some food to fill my belly, I'm going to have more time to ponder the glory of God. Rather than watch some silly thing on Sunday night and then feel guilty that I wasted my time hearing people use the Lord's name in vain and seeing pictures that I shouldn't see, if not on the program, on the commercials, I'm going to use my voice to praise God in a worship service. And rather than complaining the singing ain't what I like, I'm going to make it better. Be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Right? Okay, so that's what we're getting at. You must deal mercilessly with your own particular lusts and sins. Mr. Garrisey, getting better now? I'm getting warmed up to my topic, as they said. Yeah, that's right. You know what they said, the old black preacher, African-American preacher? And this guy would get up and preach, and this man had the anointing on him. And one day somebody went to him and said, Preacher, what's the secret to your anointing? And he says, Well, I'll tell you what it is. I goes to the study, and I studies and studies and studies and studies until I was full of fuel. 
And then I get down on my knees and I pray and I pray and I pray till I was red hot. And then I go up in the pulpit and I explode. That's anointing. All righty. And I'm never going to get done if I keep exploding on this stuff. All right, number five. You must be on the alert for every occasion your lust takes to strike. You must be on the alert for every occasion your lust takes to strike. Biblical language, Mark 13 and verse 37. Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. Luke 21 and verse 34. Take heed. Be careful. Watch out. Proverbs 20, that's Luke 21:34. Proverbs 27:12. The prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. He doesn't say, as a prudent man, I foresee evil and I'll use my Christian liberty. He foresees evil and hides himself. But the foolish one, the foolish one, proceeds to his own destruction. The simple pass on and they're punished. Romans 13 and verse 14. You should know it by now. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Let me quote Owen again. And, and listen how probing this is. Owen says, Consider what ways, what companies, what opportunities, what studies, what businesses, what conditions have at any time given or do usually give advantages to your, he said distempers, we would say weaknesses, to your weaknesses and set yourself heedfully against them all. Let me give you an example. My guess is that there's more than one of you in here who if you listen to a certain type of music by a certain male or female singer cannot be done that song before you're lusting after that one who's singing. Because the way God has made up music, if it's real music, there's a communication of one soul to another, and that's not wrong in itself. But the way some people sing, or what they say, or the way you're made up, or the way God has given you particular drives, you listen, men, to that female singer, and you mentally are in bed with her before that song is done. And Owen says, when you are aware of these things, you consider those things, and you heedfully set yourself against it. If that music does that to you, get rid of it. Now, am I setting up a command and saying you must get rid of all music? No, no. I'm saying if that's a particular temptation you have, make no provision for your flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Now, notice what Owen says. Men will do this with respect to their bodily infirmities and distempers or weaknesses, the seasons, the diet, the air that have proved offensive. Why? Oh, sounds like he's writing in Los Angeles. The seasons, the diet, the air that have proved offensive is to be avoided. And isn't that what people are today? I mean, isn't that what people are fascinated with doctors? Sure, you want to avoid those things, it will hurt you. Now he says, are the things of the soul of less importance? Know that he who dares to daily with occasions, dally with occasions of sin, will dare to sin. He who dares to dally with occasions of sin, will dare to sin. He who will venture upon temptations unto wickedness, will venture upon wickedness. Now which of you doesn't say that's right in your own soul? You know as well, some of you, you're with certain people in certain situations and your conversation at the end of that time makes you want to go to the nearest shower and get a bath. And he says, avoid it. 
Just stay away from it. That's what it means to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Okay, so you must be on the alert for every occasion your lust takes to strike. How do you do it? I've mentioned one, music. In some cases, men, magazines. You know, you get magazines in and there's pictures even in the catalogs, formerly good catalogs. And the stuff the ladies are wearing or aren't wearing is kind of like Playboy in its early years. And man, you don't take that stuff and look up and say, well, I really want to say what the sales are in here. And you know what you're looking at. Throw it out. Or if it's something like a magazine, a news magazine you want to read, give it to your wife and ask her to razor blade out the things that you ought not see. Oh, come on, why are you so fastidious? Fastidious because your soul is very valuable. And it doesn't take many sparks to make some gas blow up. Music we've mentioned, and incidentally parents with music as well, being very careful with these things, companions, times, places, because man is a sacramental creature. Physical things do things to us. Hosea 8 and verse 11, most interesting text. Hosea 8 and verse 11. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin. Ephraim made altars that Ephraim knew would be means for that tribe to break the second commandment. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. They designed it that way. They were tempting God. And as a result, they actually sinned. My friends, what altars do you have? Men, do you have pictures of that former girlfriend of yours? Maybe that gal you work with that you think is so much more attractive than your wife. You got those little altars that you put under your blotter in a book so you can look at once in a while. You made an altar for sin. And it'll become an altar for your sinning. Get rid of it. Destroy it. Destroy those altars. Parents with children. It's a battle with the TV and a battle with music. Even a battle with posters. One night I stayed in a home a number of years ago. I'm sorry to say it was a minister's family. And I stayed in his son's room and he had a big old poster of Farrah Fawcett up there. I'm going to tell you, I just had to be sure all the lights were right. I wanted to go in and say, let me rip that thing down first. How could any man with a normal amount of testosterone look up at that thing and not do what God has made men to do in a righteous way, not an unrighteous way? And remember, as many have put it so eloquently in the past, it's impossible to fix the bounds of sin. That's, see, that's the problem. We say, oh, just a little bit. Just a little bit. It's impossible to fix the bounds. You want to know the imagery the Bible uses? We looked at the text yesterday, but let's look at it again. James chapter 1 and verses 14 through 16. This is, I want to say pregnant imagery, but that would be too close of a metaphor. But watch what James does. James 1 and verse 14. But each one is tempted. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away. The word, remember, think of a fish. I mentioned it yesterday. Here's a fish in hiding. Here's a fish in a hole. And that fish is drawn out of its hiding. Each one is tempted when he is drawn out of hiding by his own desires. His own affections directed at an object. Here's the fish. The fish is hungry. The fish doesn't want to be bothered. The fish doesn't like a particular color. There's a certain affection. It's focused on the object, this old sluggo lure that you've got that's out in front of that hole. And enticed. 
enticed is to be drawn out of hiding, allured by the bait. Drawn out of hiding, there's a desire, there's the allure of the bait. But now, and some believe that in verse 15, or some believe that in verse 14, James has in view a man going after a prostitute. Now, it doesn't imply that in verse 14, but that certainly is the way that functions. But verse 15, you can see where that connects. But when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Not This would be conception, not the delivery of sin, but when desire meets with the object of desire and it is unrighteous desire, there is a conception and it's sin. Now, what is sin? And sin... When it is full grown, that sin begins to grow in the body, gives birth to death. That's why you can't fix the bounds of sin. One, one night stand. And you're pregnant with that sin. And that's when abortion is not only right, but mandated. Kill it. Right at that point. Because you can't fix the bounds of sin. Beware, my dear brothers and sisters, of the just a little one mentality. I could just see if Joe Garrisey were to say, you know, an army, he's got this thing in the back about shooting. When I go out in the army, if I'm on the battlefield, I'm going to endeavor so that I'm only going to get shot a little bit. And guess who's going to be a widow? That is asinine. And so it is in the Christian life. Beware of just a little one mentality. Imagine if Jesus had strived to be almost perfectly obedient. There'd be no heaven for us. Okay, number six. You must not give yourself any false peace. You must not give yourself any false peace. And here... For a further statement of this, I commend again, I think it's section 3, the Westminster Catechism on Assurance of Grace and Salvation. Masterful. But for now, you must not give yourself any false peace. Jeremiah 6, verses 10 through 16, the prophet said, Peace, peace. When there was no peace to the Israelites, the Israelites sinned with abandon. And Jeremiah says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they even know how to blush. And that, again, is so true of so many. They read the law of God. They're not ashamed. Stuff goes on all the time. My friend, if that's your attitude towards sin, maybe peace has been spoken to you when there ought not be any peace. It could be just a cultural anesthetic that's come. That's a dangerous position to be in. John 8, in verses 41 to 44, Jesus says, Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And in a righteous one, they're smitten in the heart. Not a Pharisee say, ah, We've never been slaves to anybody. False hopes. False peace. Job 8, in verse 13, The hope of the hypocrite, the play actor, shall perish. What are the areas of danger? We've covered one in your regeneration. Remember, rich young rulers. Rich young rulers will probably be accepted as members in many of our churches today. I kept all these commandments from my youth up. I'm a good covenant child. All of these commandments. Jesus said, there's one you missed. And you know what that one was? That one was, you've got to love God the most. But Jesus is very clever. You know, if he had said to him, do you love God the most? He would have said, yes, sir, because he was a good Jew. So Jesus said, all right, let me give you a test. I want to see if you love God the most. 
Because see, if you love God the most, and God loves you, you can have holes in your pockets, you can have nothing in your purse, and the Lord will provide for you. And so Jesus is wise. And he says, all right, tell you what, you take everything you've got and sell it and come follow me. And that old covenant child, he walked away because he wasn't regenerate. I'm telling you again, you be careful. This presumptive regeneration business with covenant children is out the window. Same with Nicodemus. And multitudes are made twofold children of hell by that stuff. I don't need to be born again. I was brought up in the church. I don't need to be born again. I went down an aisle. The Roman Catholic Church has got its indulgences. The evangelical church has its decision cards. And we've got our baptism. I mean, be careful. So the areas of danger with regeneration, but also with sanctification. Remember, we can make substitutes, false substitutes, false substitutes for grace. Phariseeism, what's Phariseeism? It's trusting in yourself that you're righteous. Phariseeism is trusting in yourself that you are righteous. I fast twice a week. I go up to the temple and pray. Okay, that's trusting, and that's where Jesus speaks to the Pharisee. He trusted in himself. The problem there is you know who your personal Savior is? Me. That's Phariseeism. Mysticism, trusting in your feelings. And that's not normally a problem that we face in Reformed churches, but I'll tell you one we do face, and every generation of Reformed churches has faced it. There's no generation since the Reformation that has not faced this third danger, and that is the terrible danger of antinomianism. Yes, antinomianism, ah, against law. And I'll tell you what antinomianism is. Antinomianism is trusting in false grace. Well, you say, what do you mean by trusting in false grace? Well, part of it is a parallel. Phariseeism, trusting in yourself, your righteous. Mysticism, trusting your feelings. Antinomianism, trusting in false grace. Let me show you what I mean. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. My preacher friends, you highlight this text, and I can bid you to memorize it. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that we are to preach the gospel to ourselves when we sin. Teaching us to always go back to our position in Christ as definitively sanctified and reminding ourselves of that. It doesn't say that. The word teaching is paiduantes. A present active participle, God is disciplining, chastening His children so that they will learn this lesson about the grace of God that brings salvation that's appeared to all men, teaching us that saying no to ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Don't say, well, I'm already a citizen of the kingdom to come and I've just got to appropriate that blessing I already have and not live with this phantom idea that somehow I'm... Paul you live in this age and in this age before you get to that age, two words, say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts. Why? How do you do it? Yes, looking for the blessed hope 
and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop there. Who gave himself for us that ahina clause, a clause of purpose to the end that he might redeem us from every anomia, lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. But he doesn't stop there. And my dear preacher friends, and my fellow elders who are ruling elders, look at this. Having made this glorious statement about real grace, that really saves people from real sin and really by the power of Christ makes them say no now while they look to the world to come, knowing this is an all-comprehensive call to holiness in this present age and one that every generation will seek to circumvent one way or the other, he says, speak, God says in His Word, and lovingly and graciously but boldly say, that view cracks on the final authority of Holy Scripture. And if there's no other text that speaks to it, this one clearly does. Saying no to all ungodliness and worldly lusts. You must give yourself, not give yourself, any false peace. Now real quickly, how does true assurance come? 1 John 5 and verse 13. I'll just let you write in the text. And I'm going to go through this very quickly because I want to cover the last point with the minutes that we have left. Well, wait a minute. No true, no false peace. What about true peace or true assurance? How does it come? 1 John 5:13. These things I've written to you that you might know intuitively that you have eternal life. So, how do you know you have eternal life? Generally, this is in your manual. I knew by this point it wouldn't, we'd be running late, so I wrote most of this down. Confess your sins. Write in 1 John 1.9 or just 1.9. These are all in 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. True confession of sin is an evidence of real salvation. Keeping God's commandments, 1 John 2 and verse 3, by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Again, over against any spirit of antinomianism. What kind of commandments? God's commandments are the Ten Commandments with a summary to love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind and your neighbor as yourself. Number three, don't love the world, 1 John 2.15. You don't love the world. That's an evidence that you're a citizen of the world to come. Don't have an ongoing pattern of sin. 1 John 3.9 Whosoever has been born of God does not sin, does not have an ongoing pattern of sin. For his seed, God's seed, abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Can't have that kind of consistent pattern if the reign of sin is broken by Christ. Love of the brothers and sisters. 1 John 3.14 We know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. Whatever other sins beset you, you say, I still love my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's an evidence of the grace of God. If your heart does not condemn you, 1 John 3.21 You can say, I walk blamelessly with a pure conscience before God, keeping short accounts and believing that Jesus... That's 1 John 3.21 And believing that Jesus is the Christ. 1 John 5.1 Whosoever is born of God believes that Jesus is the Christ. And personally, just the notes, I just want you to write the text. You can look them, look them up. Romans 8.15, we're given the spirit of adoption. 
by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We don't speak of the God. He's my God. Not the Father. He's my Father. Spirit of adoption. In Ephesians 1.13, we're given the earnest, the down payment of our future inheritance. Even as I breathe the smog of Los Angeles or New York, I live in the atmosphere of heaven. I love heaven and long to be there. Now, God's way, remember, in all of these things is to keep you before Him as the earth orbits the sun. Okay. Now, finally, number seven. I got seven minutes. Here we go on this one. You must give yourself to meditation on the majesty of God. This is not the last direction. The last one's coming up. This is next to the last. Very important. You must give yourself to meditation on the majesty of God. To mortify sin so that you get out of the flesh pots of Egypt and the septic tanks of this world. You must give yourself to meditation on the majesty of God. My proof, Job chapters 38 through 41. Job 38 through 41. Job and his friends have had lengthy discussions about the ways of God in the world and sin and chastening. And let me tell you, Job said a lot of things that would make some ministers want to carry out church discipline with him. Finally, after Job and all of his friends have discoursed, and they're like most of us were at 11 o'clock last night, they're exhausted. Then we read, The Lord answered Job like a whirlwind. And he says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Job, give me somebody who can make it rain. Job, name someone who can reach up to those three stars that make the belt of the constellation Orion and take off his belt. Job, try to make some lightning. Job, see these massive animals in the sea and in the land? Make one. What does all this have to do with mortifying sin? Look at Job 42 and verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Ah, Job became a Calvinist when he got to know God. And anyone who gets to know God and has a pure heart will be a Calvinist. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. What a fool I am, he said. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. When Job had a sense of the majesty of God, God's glory did what hours of discourses from his friends could not even begin to do. 
he saw himself in all of his ugliness and said, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah sees God high and lifted up on a throne and what does he do? He says, oh, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The Apostle John sees the glory of the Lord Jesus in the Isle of Patmos. Eyes like flame of fire, feet like fine brass, voice as the sound of many waters. In his right hand are seven stars, and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And John doesn't say, wow, let me sell some t-shirts that say things go better with Jesus. He falls flat on his face, and he repents of his own sin. He can't even stand up. My friend, you saturate yourself in passages about God. His attributes, especially the attributes of Christ as the God-man. And let a biblically bounded and driven imagination flow. Like as a father pities the children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. He remembers that we are but dust. And let the glory of that awesome God who made you humble you. And let the love of that great God who deigns to call sinners who are in Christ as children make you thankful to Him. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. But on this one do I look. You can build all the temples you want for me. I don't need them. Heaven my throne. Earth my footstool. I look at this one. Him who is poor and of a contrite heart and who trembles at my word. What a glorious God who looks upon those who are broken hearted. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. There is no spot in you. And that's your Jesus in all of His glory. And that will make you say, How can I sin against my God who's given Himself for me? Consider that all of these attributes are focused on you. That God is my Father. That judge has judged all of my sins in Christ. That God who is preparing heaven for His people is preparing it for me. And as you marinate in those things, the world will stink to you even more. And you'll want evermore to go to glory. That will humble you. Remember how God dealt with Abraham about his unbelief? Abraham says, oh, come on. Sarah, you know how old she is? She's not going to be able to have a baby. God says, Abraham, let's go outside a little bit. You see all those stars? I'm the one that made them. Don't worry about how you're going to get a baby. And Abraham looked at the stars. And then it says, he believed God. And it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And that will transform you. As we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus in a mirror, we are transformed from grace to grace, just as by the Lord the Spirit. And the tragic devitalizing effect, one of them of video Christianity, is there's a sapping of the strength that comes from a biblically bounded imagination. One of the reasons I can't stay in TV is I used to work in radio and I love radio. Even though I was a little bit too old to appreciate it when they're on, I've still got the tapes of the old Amos and Andy programs and Fibber McGee and Molly and the real Superman. And you listen to those things as our children do and their imagination flows. They don't want to watch TV afterwards. They want to let their imagination go. 
Don't ask Bill Bright to do a Jesus film for you. Come on. Apart from the blasphemy of it, what do you want to warp the Scriptures for by that? Read the Scriptures and let a biblically bounded imagination flow. Give attention to the Word of God. That's the glory of the Reformed faith. Why is it that so often we've got to deal with people who've ruined their lives coming from religions in which their feelings are made their demigod? Because their feelings will drive them into sin. But so often just the fact that you're in a worship service beholding the glory of an awesome God will make you say, how can I go out and live in a sewer? Meditate upon the glory and the attributes of our great God. Now, my friends, if you try to deal with sin, and you can go back over the ones, I'm not going to relist them for you. We need your break right now. If you try to deal with sin in only these ways, these seven things that I've listed, you're going to fail. I built a car for you. There's no engine in it yet. There's no engine in this car yet. So you've got to come back in 15 minutes and we'll give you the engine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now we pray that you will take these things that we've learned, these rather uh, general, large uh, strategies for winning the war with the devil. Uh, Lord, we pray that we will learn these things and build on them. But now prepare us for what is to come as we receive the grand direction without which it is impossible to mortify one deed of the body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.